in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica, preaches there for three weeks and is kicked out of the town. He's kicked out by charges being brought against not him personally because they couldn't catch him but the man who put him up. The charges that they levelled against him was that they were preaching that there is another king, one called Jesus and in so doing were defying Caesar's decrees. I think megalomania goes with the activity of political power. The power of the ancient Caesar was indeed very great and he certainly didn't like to know that there was another king roaming his universe. But there was something preposterous about proclaiming another king called Jesus who had been just a few years before executed in obscurity. How could he be now any threat to Caesar? Acts 17 is an interesting background to us because very shortly afterwards Paul wrote the first epistle to the Thessalonians. He wrote out of great concern for them and worry because they were a baby church, only been there just a few weeks and persecution had already broken out as he anticipated it would and in fact had to look after them and so he went on and, and sent Timothy back to look after them and then Timothy caught up with him in Athens while he was almost in the middle of and expresses in this marvellous little letter in 1 Thessalonians how the Thessalonians have stood firm for the gospel that they so recently embraced. It's a marvellous part of the New Testament because it's full of evangelism like the rest of the New Testament and it's there when it's all happening. You read about what happened in Acts and you get a letter that was written just almost within weeks of what had happened that you read about in the book of Acts with all the freshness, all the anxiety, all the tension and the turmoil that is going on and the difficulty of how to follow up a brand new Christian. Those who are uh, doing our follow-up course, Thessalonians, you come back to again and again and for a very good reason because here is Paul looking after baby Christians. It's a marvellous book in that regard and he describes what it was to be a Christian for them. It says, that you became model Christians, model converts actually, because in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 he says, people tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues from wrath to come, the coming wrath. It's a marvellous little passage. I spoke on it at Sydney University the Mission three or four years ago. And we had it printed on the sheet, how they had turned from God to idols. We all have our problems. What was worse, I read it that way all the time too. <laughs> Many were converted. <laughs> well, not enough. But there is what it is to be a Christian, you see, to turn from idols to God, to do what with God? To serve the living and the true God. Well, a Jew could be that, couldn't he? That's more than that. And to wait for his son from heaven. 
Jesus who rescues from the wrath to come. Christians are waiters. We are waiting for the Son to return. Our mindset is that of the coming Lord. As we have a mindset, as we think, as we have a world view, if you like those big terms, as we have a, a universe, in terms of the universe next door, that runs around inside our head, as we have a, a cognitive pattern in our brain, so we fit in information and so we make decisions. As our mind is, is programmed, so we take in and give out. And we have as a great joy and privilege in life the enormous pleasure of making decisions. It's a marvellous pleasure, isn't it, that we can do. Some Christians are scared about it and terrified and don't want to do it and want magic ways of finding out what God wants them to do without ever using the brains that he's given for us to use. But we should see it as a positive, as a wonderful thing that God has created us as beings who can think who can analyse, who can evaluate, who can decide, who can put their decisions into action. That is what we are given in this world. And we have lots of decisions to make. And in one sense you feel like it more at uh, the tertiary education stage and phase of your life than almost any other phase, that there seems to lie just ahead of you. It's not today, but it's, it's going to be soon. Big decisions. Will I do second year or not? <laughs> For the third time. Will I change faculties? Will I do postgraduate study? Will I take a job in the faculty that I've been trained in or will I go and work in the bank? Or could I do both? Will I go overseas? Will I marry? If I marry, who will I marry? Will it be Kim or will it be Lee? What will my wife think about that? <laughs> and all kinds of other kinds of decisions that you have in life that you are confronted with. And decision making is in fact so much part and parcel of, of life that we do it a thousand, thousand times each day with almost out even noticing. Whether or not to have peanut butter or honey or both, whether to put the lid straight back on or leave it open for the rest of the people on the table to uh, dip in as well. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of little decisions, most of which we think will have no consequence to us, although it's surprising how often the little ones do and the big ones don't. Here is a character of life of all the alternatives. But what is the point of it all? What is the basis of the decisions that we really should be making. Are they real decisions or are they, like Skinner would have us believe, figments of distorted uh, imaginations for really that kind of freedom, that kind of responsibility that goes with decision making is a myth. You're just part of a, a determined program. You're not really making them. And what is the world like? What is your vision of the, of, the, of the universe upon which you can make decisions? Of course, the average Australian vision of the universe is the surf on a warm day. I'm not sure it goes much beyond that. Possibly a tinny when you come in. 
There is about the level of it. And that's why they make such lousy decisions. Look at the politicians we elect. To prove my point. But taking people who actually do think, of which some have been known to be caught up in the program, there are certain you can have of how you view the world which will then determine the kinds of decisions you're making. The Christian scientist, for example. He believes that the material universe is an illusion. It's not actually there. It's a, it's a massive deception of a, of a broken mind. The only thing that is real is the spiritual existence. And therefore, whenever you perceive your body to be sick, you are having a double misperception. One, that you've got a body, and two, that it's sick. And if you sit down and read a Mary Baker Eddy and the key and to the scripture, health and key to the scriptures, and you meditate long enough about it and think more clearly about the matter, you'll be freed from terrible sickness that you have and indeed you'll be freed from thinking of yourself as a bodily state. There is a world view, you see, which affects behaviour, especially of the health question. They're quite unusual world view, isn't it? Not one everybody thinks about. It's not the kind of... You've got to actually read Christian science literature to tumble to that one. The materialist one you hear programmed all the time. What is the world but a gigantic accident? Uh, whatever pattern you want to go with big bangs and the rest or not or however and whether they're recurring and, or, but it's an accident a meaningless random event and therefore all the decisions you make are really meaningless fundamentally we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here and we're all like the grand old Duke of York marching our men up and down in order to march them down and up and it really is nothing. It's like the myth of Sisyphus rolling the old rock up the top of the hill so that it might be rolled down again. Whichever version of the materialism you want to go for, it really is meaningless. There is no meaning of life. The Philip Adams local variety here in his book says there is no meaning to life. Anyone who says they're meaning to life, you know they're wrong and then he writes a chapter on the meaning of life. But that's all right because he believes in contradictions. Why not believe in contradictions? There's no truth. If there's no truth, then you can have any number of contradictions, except if there's no truth, there's nothing to contradict either, is there? But that doesn't matter. Do not let consistency stand between us and Philip Adams. <laughs> you see, it is that magnificent materialism which most Australians like because it dispenses with God, it dispenses with responsibility, it dispenses with me being in the wrong. So Australians like it, but no Australian really wants to live it out because they don't want to face meaninglessness, purposelessness, stupidity. But it's not just the static, what is the world? It's the longitudinal too. Where is the world going? From whence has it come and to where will it go? Are we in the process of going anywhere or not? The, 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 the uh, existentialist says, no, we're not going anywhere. It's just happening. Some of the scientists will put us down into the gigantic entropy. We're all just going down into the great cold. Fortunately, not in our lifetime, which makes it such a very pleasant philosophy especially if you don't like kids. The Hindu, of course, will be seeing that it's actually going nowhere. Well, he's a Platonist, I suppose, will be seeing it's going, or the Stoic, rather, will be seeing it's going into great large circles, 
repetitive patterns but every X number of thousand years it's all repeating itself it's going round and round and round and that's actually an idea you'll hear in Australian society if you chat to the grosser philosopher over the counter and they'll tell you things like oh well you know there's birth and there's marriage and there's birth and death and the next generation marries and has kids and dies and the next and the next and that's just the wheel of life isn't it being born copulating reproducing dying that's what life's about and so the whole universe is really just doing that it's not going anywhere the Marxist he says oh no it's going somewhere it has been and it is on the way because the Marxist is really a Christian heretic it comes out of Christianity it comes out of that whole idealism that really is saying that history is en route there is a beginning there is an end it might be an endless end but it's going to that point there is an inevitability about it although how much Marx believed in deterministic inevitability is an argument amongst mute point amongst historians but there is an inevitability about it the whole process of the world is en route to a particular place now you see it depends on which of those categories you have running around in your head as to how you'll make certain decisions if life is meaningless well I might as well murder my mother-in-law make me feel better make my father-in-law feel better <laughs> make all that's not true I got a lovely mother-in-law and this is on tape <laughs> but I may as well I may as well as that man in crime and punishment go out and butcher an old lady just to prove that I'm the Superman Nietzsche is right you see if that's I mean those kinds of decisions are on aren't they Philip Adams says that he would commit terrible crimes if the situation suited him it's an interesting book he's written it shows you the terrible hopelessness of the alternative to Christianity tell lies he believes in telling lies once you read that sentence why do you read on <laughs> a man who believes in telling you lies why do you believe him but of course he does because why not you see that's the world's not going anywhere there's no accountability there is only death there's only the vast eons of nothingness out there live and die that's all there is if you think of course it's all heading in a particular path well you may as well get on board with the direction it's going join the revolution because why fight it why be against it in fact you can't help it you're going to get caught up in it one way or another even your opposition turns out to be just another process well what are the Christian what is your perception of the universe what is it now where is it going because unless you have this this big backdrop worked out properly the decisions that you are making may well be inconsistent with your God they may be contrary to the very plans and purposes of God and you may not even understand what it is you're doing or why it is you're doing and on something as fundamental as evangelism yes that is the topic on something as fundamental as evangelism you mightn't have any good reason for doing it other than the bloke out the front says I've got to and of course that won't stand the pressure of the heat of the day when you're out there on the campus first year welcomers coming in new people you're trying to evangelize them it's such a lousy rotten horrible job just because some Charlie down at Belgrave Heights told you to get out there and do it will not stick unless you are peculiarly thick 
They've got to have a stronger, better, deeper, more profound motivation than that, which comes out of, I believe, the understanding of what the universe is about, what the world is about, what I am about. And I can understand that properly, not to evangelise, not to evangelise. I've got myself into a double negative. I must evangelise. The not to evangelise is the absurdity. Let me show you. I'm going to dip into the book of Revelation tonight and give you a little peep into heaven. We've got to recapture Revelation for Bible readers. Take it out of the hands of nutties. It's so long been in the hand of nutties that Bible readers have stopped reading it. Most of us only got 65 books. That's if we've still got Esther in, of course. But really it's a marvellous book. And there's great things in it. And you know, I know it's a terrible shock to your system, but when I read it and really worked through it finally, I discovered it's all about the gospel. Indeed, it's about Jesus. You never would have guessed that if you'd listened to the kinds of radio shows and television shows and weirdo books that come out. I always thought it was about Mao Zedong and Russians and, and which ones? And, and bombs and missiles and, and fruitcakes. <laughs> now I can't go into all the ins and outs of how you work out the book of Revelation and there are some tricks. So can I commend a couple of good books to you? There's lots of good commentary. That surprised me too. Lots of good commentaries on Revelation. One of the best that's most accessible to you is Leon Morris's one in the Tyndale series. Uh, it's, it's a marvellous little commentary. And just because he's an Australian doesn't mean that it has to be lousy. Huh? It is very, very good commentary on the book of Revelation in the Tyndale series. There's another one by IVP, Michael Wilcox. I saw heaven opened. Very lovely book. He's an Englishman, but it's all right. It really is a It's okay as a book. See, John Scott hasn't arrived, has he? It's a very fine book. In fact, you can tell he's all right because he came down to Australia just to meet up with Christians in Australia and he didn't come on a preaching tour. He's about the only Englishman I know who's done that, you see. And he's a lovely man and he's written a very good book on the book of Revelation. If you find commentary reading hard going, that's in the Bible Speaks Today series. And, oh, Alan, you've done all the book reviews. I don't need to do any more, do I? Now... There are certain things that happen in the, in the book of Revelation over and over again. One is number symbolism. Another is colour symbolism. There's lots of other symbolisms that you just take for granted. You read them and pick them up immediately. But one of the ones that we find a bit funny are numbers. Another one is colours. Because we're mathematicians through and through. Even those of us who failed, even those of you who failed mathematics, I don't have to confess to you. We, we have still a mathematical mindset and we can't help but see seven and think, okay, half over means six and eight, square root of 49, you know, good, bang, there's seven. But the ancient world did not always think mathematically and arithmetically like that. It was much more, numbers had feelings. Now you can still get it in Australia, number 13. There are all kinds of hotels which have you know, root, floor 11, 12, 14, 15, 16. Right? And it's not the air conditioning plan on 13 either. Just don't have it. Why? Because 13 has a symbolic significance to us that's got nothing to do with math. Is that right? We still have it with, 
with uh, other things that you can find in your numbers, the numbering of points. You know, this is my third point, four point, point five, point six, point six. Really aren't mathematical points when you think about them. I could have called them X, Y, Z, couldn't I? I could have called them, this is my elephant point, this is my rhinoceros point, this is my... Huh? It really has not, it's not necessarily mathematical. There's a whole range of ways in which we still use numbers of that character. Uh, why is it so important a man gets a century at cricket? I mean, what's wrong with getting 99? Would that every Australian batsman could get 99? Would that any Australian batsman could get 99? Heard a marvellous definition of an optimist the other day as an Australian batsman with zinc cream on. <laughs> really is dreadful, isn't it? What's so important about getting the 100? They think he failed because he only got 98. See, we've got, there's something more than just mathematics in it. There's a symbolism about certain numbers. All right. Number four in the book of Revelation, and indeed most apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament, you're in the New Testament as well, number four stands for the whole earth, four corners of the world, four winds of heaven. It's, it's what happens on the earth. The world is perceived as, as four-sided. Oh, I don't think they necessarily thought that it was a square, but that four is just the standard for the world. Seven is the standard for perfection for completion, for totality, for fullness. Okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Right? The way you've counted it, so you're finished then, just by the way of counting. And so three and a half, which you get lots of three and a halves, three and a half stands for something that's cut off, that's, that's broken, that's, that's not finished, that's chopped. And so 42 months is how many years? Three and a half. So it's a period that is broken into, that doesn't reach its fulfilment, its completion. So it's a, it's a way of thinking that once you catch hold of it, it's actually fairly simple and it fires out. And you look for things like 12, which of course is a key number in the Old Testament because you've got 12 tribes of Israel and you've got 12 apostles. That Jesus had 12 apostles is not accidental. That when one of them died, they replaced him with St. Matthias, the patron saint of our church. I just thought I'd point that out in case you come our way. Matthias, only one in Sydney. Because uh, they replaced... Why, did they, why were they so keen to have a 12th? They actually had a 13th, if you remember. There were two men that they could choose from, both who were fully qualified, but you couldn't have 13 apostles, you only have 12. Why could you only have 12? Because Jesus only chose 12. But what's so big about 12? Well, you can't actually call 12 men out to form with you the new kingdom without the 12 tribes of Israel and the whole new people of God being part of the scene. And later in the book of Revelation, you'll find that the city of Jerusalem is built with 12 apostles and 12 patriarchs. So 24 then becomes an important number. It's just a way of thinking. Well, most of the numbers I need to tell you about has come out already. Colours also have a symbolism. And again, symbolism may be too strong a word. The word cliche maybe will do. You know, the man hit a towering six. You ever notice that they always tower? You know, you rarely hear them say, yeah, that was a flat six. <laughs> no, it was a towering six. It just becomes, the words just become associated after a while, right? And white can be associated with purity, cleanliness, but is frequently associated with victory. That's a trick to us because that's not the way we think of it. White we think of as washed clean, whereas they will tend to wash in the blood, which we don't think will get you very white. <laughs> Corpuscles of certain types and so on. But white is the sign of victory and some of the other colours will come out too. All right, there's enough to give us going. Let's look at Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7 and into 8. And then for breakfast, we'll... <laughs> this 
going to be one of those old-fashioned what they call Bible readings because there's going to be a lot of Bible reading as we go through. But it'll be skip reading too. So you've got to keep your eyes going and exercising and we may have a break when you get those chairs become intolerable. After this, writes John, I looked and there before me was a door standing in heaven and the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. John has a series of these visions when he is in the spirit. Three times he uses the phrase in the spirit and I don't think it actually means he's in a trance. I don't think that's the, the meaning of it. That's, that's what we would think of it because we have a funny view of the spirit. I think it means that he is actually in the next world, in the world to come. Jesus was uh, put to death in the flesh and raised in the spirit. That's a funny verse for us, isn't it? Because we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Why does it say the resurrection in the spirit? Uh, it's got to do with the flesh is this age, the spirit is the next. The works of the spirit, if you remember, the, the, the works of the flesh rather, are things like greed, covetousness, which we would think are sins of the spirit, wouldn't we? So the way the New Testament uses the word flesh and the way we use it, and the way we use spirit and they use it, not quite sitting exactly right. We need to think about that. Check out the commentaries on it again. But I think it's not so much he moves into a trance so much as he sees in the spirit. He sees now into the world of the spirit. He has now uh, the spiritual perception. The, the, spirit of the, the, the uh, Holy Spirit, of course, gives it. It's the, it's the age to come. It's actually also an allusion back to the book of Daniel. Daniel keeps on being shown things that are not for now but for the far distant future. And John keeps using in the book of Revelation the same words as Daniel, but they're now. The things that are about to take place, that aren't nearly to take place. When we read the book of Revelation, we don't know our Old Testaments, we don't know Daniel, we haven't got our cross-reference NIV Bibles yet, and so we, and even if we have, we don't bother using them, and so we see it's about the things that are going to happen. Well, that must be in the future. In fact, that must be the 20th century, that must be Herbert W. Armstrong. But if you if you look at the words and compare them with the book of Daniel, Daniel's saying almost the same thing about what is to happen, not now, but in a long time. A time and a time and a time and a half a time. Somewhere down there time is going to happen. Whereas John says it's happening now. What must, must right now be taking place. And so he gets shown into what is going to take place. And what is going to take place is going to take place because of what is now there. Now, it's not just the future. The future is determined by the present existence. And we were sitting there. I was conned. I was conned by the sand grabbers. I was just sitting there thinking to myself, it really is a very messy stage with that stupid table there. I didn't know what was to soon take place. This yellow head <laughs> to pop up with books and the puppet there as well. <laughs> no, no, the, <laughs> the, the yellow head to pop up. The, the, the other man was here with the books, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, that magnificent creature that has a head and a, a hand. Uh, now, if I had come around here and had a look, I could have seen what must soon take place, couldn't I? Because it was already there. 
That is what John is getting. He is getting a revealing of it, an unveiling of what is taking place. He is taken into the Spirit, into the door of heaven, and what is there now, when you see what is there now, you will know what is about to take place. Now, if you could just understand it. I mean, if you could see the bomb that was planted in this building, you'd know what was soon to take place. Right? That's the kind of picture that you've got here. Now, what is it that he sees when he gets his people? This is a marvellous passage, friends. You and I are going to visit heaven tonight. That's what we're going to do. We're going to visit heaven just for a few minutes. No, a bit more than a few minutes. What did you see when you go there? At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne. You see, you do believe in symbolism. You know the symbolism immediately, don't you? Who sits on a throne? A king, right? It comes to your mind. Don't say a seat, the throne. It's set up as a throne. A throne was there. And the one who sat... And with someone sitting on it. Not told who it is because of deference to God, of course, because who else do you expect to sit on the throne of heaven? Good question. I'll answer it in a little while. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne, and surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the centre and around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and the back and the first living creature was like a lion and the second was like an ox and the third had the face of a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle and each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under these wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him and lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Well, you get three different pieces, don't you? You have the one who sits on the throne, who is clearly God, who was and is and is to come, who lives forever and ever and who is worthy of all power and glory and honour, etc. There's clearly God who sits on the throne and who is perceived as the king, as the ruler, as the lord of the universe. That is how God is revealed to John, as indeed throughout the scriptures he is revealed. But there are two other important features, people or beings or whatever or sets of beings who participate in the divine drama that is taking place in heaven right at this very moment in fact because it keeps on happening all the time one of the 24 elders who sit on thrones in white victorious they are 24 elders who I take it are the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs in other words the representative of all God's people are sitting there around the throne sharing in the the kingly power of God but of course under his authority because as soon as they see him and all the time they are laying their crowns before him and falling down before him all the people of God are, are doing this they never stop calling out God's holiness his uniqueness his might his power and his permanence and they give glory and honour and thanks to him for this for all time and around the, uh, the uh, creatures Sorry, that's the song of the creatures rather than the elders. The elders, but it's much the same in verse 11. All the people of God are singing verse 11. 
Verse 9 is the song of the creatures. Now these four creatures, who are they? Strange weirdos. Well, six wings flying around. You should immediately think back to which part of the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 6. That's right, six wings they flew, two they covered their eyes and they didn't bump into each other. Well, we find out why now. They have lies all over them, everywhere. You see? All seeing, travelling creatures. But they're creatures of the, of the animal world, including the human, you see. A third century AD rabbi wrote, The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domesticated animals is the bull. The mightiest amongst the beasts is the lion. But the mightiest of all is man. Interesting parallel that you've got the same four creatures, the faces there in, the, in this as you do in normal rabbinic thinking. In fact, you'll find a couple of Old Testament allusions. And they are the normal ones. They are the mightiest. They are the, the rulers of the air and of all the creatures and the wild animals and the beasts that are domesticated as well. All the kinds of characteristics of, of creation. In other words, all the living creatures, all the creatures of the world are gathered around God, singing out, praising him, never, never stopping from saying this, God's mightiness and power. And so with the whole of the created order, all the creatures of the universe singing God's praise, and now with the song coming in of the, all of God's people, the 24 elders, etc., all God's people singing his praise and falling down to him, we arrive at this great and high climax that is there in verse 11, that God is worthy to receive glory, honour, power. Why? Why is he worthy to receive all this? Because he's the creator. For you have created all things. Created in the sense of bringing them into being. Created, ex nihilo, out of nothing in this verse. By your will they were created and have their being. Everything exists, everything that does exist, exists because of you including, of course, we. We exist because of you. We are yours. And therefore, we owe you everything. All honour, all glory, all power. For you have created all things. It's extraordinary, you see. Because here we have spelled out for us the very purpose of life. Whoops, you missed it. Look again. What is the very purpose of life? Why are we here? Are we here because we're here because we're here because we're here? No. We're here because somebody has made us to be here. As soon as you perceive that you are the creation of something, you, someone, you have, very important point at that point actually, you have purpose. See, this is not a lump of wood. Oh, you're a lump. I don't know what it is. It's a lectern. It's been made. And it's been made with a purpose. To serve a particular function. In fact, it's one of the fanciest lecterns in all Australia because it's got a little button and you can go up and down with it. Very sophisticated made lectern, this one. I won't do it for you now because it'll go down and I won't be able to get it back up again. <laughs> but... It's been made, and it's been made for a purpose. But where does its purpose come from? Not from itself. Its purpose comes from its maker and its owner. The maker and owner give it purpose. 
You see, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that you are made, if you believe that you are a great accident, then you are purposeless. If you believe you have been made by someone, then you have been made for his purposes. If you believe that he, is, he owns you, then you are his. So for why do you live? You live for him, because of him. Oh, Presbyterians, what a joy. The chief end of man is glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that nice they got it right? Being their only their first question. If they get that wrong, you're doomed, aren't you, from there on in. It's the only question every Presbyterian knows. And Anglicans, we're set. We all know our first question, what is your name, N or M? <laughs> Very symbolic of the difference between Presbyterianism and Anglicanism at that stage, isn't it? From the sublime to the banal. However, for those of you who are Baptists and who are now utterly and completely lost, <laughs> blessed and holy are you. Please stay wet behind the ears. Now, oh, the party's getting rough, isn't it? <laughs> hey, hey, that's not right. No, no. Well, what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is God. That's the purpose of life. He is your raison d'etre. He is why you are. He is that you are. That can't be right. Surely there must be a purpose within me. Surely I must make up my purpose for my life. That's what Philip Adams says he does. And you know the purpose he's got, don't you? The greater glorification of Philip Adams. That's what it's about. Well, why not? If you've got nothing in life to live for that's greater than Philip Adams, what a paltry life you have. If you've got nothing in your life to live that's greater than you, what a paltry life you've got. So you've got to live for the creator of the you, the, man who, the one who's made you. But there's a terrible rub on that, isn't there? Because now there is something or someone in your life that's more important than you. And that actually if he starts saying that I've got to do things or be things or go places or he wants... I like it with me being God. I'm not a bad God, really. You should try me sometime. I'm very kind to myself. I give in all the time. <laughs> you see the rap? Creation... The very doctrine of creation is magnificent because it gives the whole purpose of life. Creation is an appalling doctrine to anyone who's sinful. Because the very, crea very idea of creation tells me I'm responsible to someone else. And so what the average Australian wants, of course, is no responsibility but plenty of meaning. Can't have it not on. Responsibility and meaning go hand in hand in the creation. And all the time when you can actually go past the surf, when you can get beyond the wind surface, when you can see out beyond 
the pleasures of the sunshine of Australia and you open up into heaven and you see what's there now, what you will see now is that God is king and rightly so and will be acknowledged as so by all of the creation, all of the created beings and all of the people of God and they will acknowledge he is rightly king because they'll know that he is their creator, the eternal one, their lord, their ruler. Now it's not a bad chorus that picks up Revelation 4.11 and it's not a bad little track that starts off using that verse. (laughs) Very important verse, isn't it? See what's being said? Marvellous verse. Well, that's almost like worth going home, isn't it? We've reached the climax, we've finished the story, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. See, Revelation 4.11 is not the end of the book of Revelation. For when John gets to look into heaven and he sees God in all his glory, he sees God as the heavenly creator, the ruler of the universe and all the rest of it. He sees that God has a will and testament in his hand, has a scroll, has a writing, has a plan, has a purpose for the universe. Has a something. We're never really told what's on the scroll in a sense. It's just written thoroughly. But it's all sealed up. You know, well, what has God got to say? I mean, here I am seeing God. He's got something to say. What has he got to say? Let me open the scrolls. Well, I can't do that because I'm not worthy to approach God and take his book from him. Who is worthy there is in the universe to take the hands of God from the hand of God, the writings of God and possibly put into effect the plans and purposes of God? Who is there is so worthy? And the answer is no one. And we know why, for the whole world has rebelled against God, been committed to the futility of death. There's no one worthy. And that is John's reaction for it should be yours and it should be mine, but I don't think it is always because we don't understand properly. John's reaction is he weeps. What a tragedy. What an appalling tragedy. Here is the height of all tragedy in a sense, that the creator has made a world for a purpose that no one in his world is worthy to find out, to put into effect, to reveal, to make known, to bring about, to accomplish. Here's the great tragedy. A meaningful world locked up in silence. Locked up without the plans of God, its creator. But the elder comforts him. Don't worry about it, there's somebody who is worthy. Who is it that can be worthy? 
And the old the book of Revelation is marvellous because the whole time you think you're reading the Old Testament, but when you check the cross references, it's just a little bit different. So the line of the tribe of Judah, you say, oh, well, I know that's from the Old Testament. You chase it up, you won't find it. It's full of those kinds of things. But you're right. The king, the ruler of Jeru Judah, the king of Judah, the Messiah, the root of David. Oh, well, that's quite clear. Only in the Old Testament is the root of Jesse. But Jesse was David's father, so you know who it is, don't you? Right? This is the king, the Messiah, the ruler of the universe. Jesus is going to come now. We know that, isn't it? He is worthy because he has triumphed. He has conquered. And so he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And it will all take place now. And so with bated breath, you read on to find out what he looks like. We've already seen him in chapter 1. Fearsome character. A son of man standing in his glory. And now we see him again. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it's been slain. Now for us, you see, we're full of it. Even some of our stained glass windows have got it, if you can bear the sight of looking at those terrible forms of two-dimensional idolatry. The lamb, the lamb that's slain, you see, that's, that's part of our biblical metaphors. We just take it in. But think of the radical shock of it. Here is the lion. Who is the lamb? It's very radical in its idea. It's not a ram, it's a lamb. It's not just any old lamb, it's a dead lamb. <laughs> a sacrificial lamb that has already been sacrificed. Maybe if we called it a dead sheep, it would have the effect upon us of the, of the illusion. And notice where it's standing. It's standing in the very centre of the throne. Who did you think was standing on the throne? Oh, it's a funny business, isn't it? Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and he had seven horns, and the horn is the symbol of strength in the Old Testament and the Scriptures, and so complete strength, if you like, and the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The omniscience of God knows all. Seven horns, seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Notice you can't push all this into, into, into literal events, can you? Because they're always falling down before the God. How can you always be falling down? You've got to, you've got to pick it as, as, as the poetry that it's meant to be, as the symbolism, as the figures that they are. Now, all these creatures and all the people of God are falling down before the Lamb and each of them has a harp and they're holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints that they're offering to this one and they're now singing a new song. Something new has happened in heaven. Did you know about it? Have you heard something new in heaven? John is seeing something new in heaven for all eternity. They've been singing these praises and now the Lamb has come because now the Lamb has triumphed. You say, well, how does time fit in with eternity? Forget it. You're asking the wrong question. A stupid 20th century question. Grasp hold of heaven. Now something great has happened. The great drama of heaven is now taking place or has taken place. The Lamb has come. He's taken the scroll. He's about to open the seals. God's plans and purposes are coming to their fulfilment. His will or whatever it is that's on this scroll is going to take place. We're going to find out about it now. Because the triumph has taken place. And so all the creatures suddenly start falling down before this one. And they're singing a new song. 
You are worthy to take the scroll. Well, what makes this one so worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? Well, you're told why. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped and it's all a terrible piece of appalling blasphemy unless Jesus is God what right have the creatures of the universe to sing praise and glory and honour to a sheep a dead one at that how can those who give all power, all glory, all honour to the almighty creator now start giving some power, glory and honour to someone else? What power, glory and honour is there to be giving to him? They've given it already one direction. Who are they giving it to now? To the lamb. Why? What is it about this lamb? What is it that he has done that has made him worthy not so much even just to take the scroll, but worthy to go onto the throne. Verse 9, you see. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Here is the great drama of heaven. It's the cross of Jesus. John is seeing it, although it happened many years beforehand in his lifetime. Well, how is he seeing it now? Well, he's seeing it now because he's in the spiritual. So he's actually now, the curtain's been pulled back and he's found out what the universe is really all about. It's all about the creator and the redeemer. It's all about the Lamb receiving the power and glory from the Creator, from him who sits upon the throne. It's all about the whole universe joining together in praise and adoration and glory to our Creator and Redeemer, the one who sits on the throne. For in the end, the Creator is the Redeemer. Here is what it's about. The lamb that roared. The lamb who is the lion. That's who it is about. The king who comes to his kingly power by execution. Not many people try it that way. Those who have haven't succeeded. Here is one, though, who has, because what he has done is purchased people to share his rule with them. 
Which people? People from everywhere. All the missionary people amongst us now are getting agitated and excited. And the rest of you should be. Which people? Everywhere people. Evangelism is going to come into that, isn't it? Somewhere along the line, you've got to get evangelism in now. It's not just the Jews he's purchased, everywhere. And he's going to open up the seals. It's a great fanfare for what's about to happen. We'll sing that other song at the end, eh? Worthy the Lamb that was slain for us. We'll sing it at the end, not now. Because what do we see now? The Lamb opens the seals. What do you expect when the seals are going to be opened? Are you interested? Sorry if you're not. You really do need to get to AFS conference earlier so you can get good night's sleep so that you can listen to the Bible. Because I've actually got you now, actually if you're with us at the moment, you're in heaven at the moment. This is what is taking place there now. That's the scene. If you could just have, if you popped into heaven at this many, that's what you'd be seeing. Now what would you see when the seals are opened up? What do you expect to see? It's different to what you're thinking. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. And when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. And it's right, I was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quarter of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and don't damage the oil and the wine. And then the lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard a voice, a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. And Gerard's name was Death. And Hades was following close behind him and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. I'm not so sure I want this seal. The scroll suddenly turns very bitter, doesn't it? Here are the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse without uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Here they are in their original. What are these four horses? They're about disaster. Death. War, conquest, famine, the black one's famine. In case you wondered, those prices are just, it just shows there's nothing to be had anywhere. That's what the business about the, fork, the, the court for the wheat for the day's wages and all that. You can't get anything anywhere. Scarcity, famine, and of course, they all mix up together, don't they, in life? You see, conquest and warfare and famine and death all go hand in hand in our world today as much as any day and age. Ethiopia's full of it. It really is all about warfare and conquest and famine and, and death. That's what the life is like and has been like. And that's what, but where is it happening? It's happening on the earth. That's where it's happening. Ah, John's vision of heaven doesn't exclude this world. John's vision of heaven interplays with this world. That, that the great plans of God are this eternal kingdom with all the universe praising God is still being worked out in this world through famine and warfare and bloodshed and death. And when the fifth seal, you open the fifth seal, you're not so sure you want any more open, do you? 
There are seven. The souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. Can we bear a sixth and a seventh? I mean, this is fairly terrible stuff at this stage of the game, isn't it? What is it? It's saying that while all this is taking place in the world, famine and warfare and bloodshed and death, while all this is taking place, those who are the, the martyrs, the saints who have died for the word of God, they're in heaven calling out to God saying, bring the judgment day, bring the judgment day. We want judgment. We want you to avenge us now. Bring the judgment day. Do you pray, Lord, come? Our parliamentarians do every day. Our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come. If only they knew what was going to come when the kingdom come, they'd stop praying that prayer. <laughs> Never dawns on their... Well, we elect them. You wouldn't expect it, I suppose. <laughs> what on earth they're praying? They're praying, come, Lord. But the people of God do pray, come. Anyone who doesn't love the coming of the Lord is not one of his. Who are the people of God but those who are looking forward to the return of Jesus? Why? Because they want to put the world right. As long as it's this world and not the next, it'll never be right. Or you can stop the war there, but it'll start over here. Or you can feed the people here, but the others over there will die of starvation. The poor you will always have with you. Oh, I'm not saying that you don't do something about it, but don't think you'll be able to do everything because that's a fool's paradise. The only way in this world is ever going to come to a total righteousness is by God's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. And you know when that will be, don't you? When the Lord Jesus returns and do you want it? Well, then pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. And that's what they're praying. Lord, how much longer? And they're given the white robes of victory and said, wait on, there's a few more to die yet. A few more of God's people to die because it's God's plan and purpose that people will die for the sake of Jesus Christ and the testimony to his word. Do you believe that? Do you want to do it? Should it be you? Well, why shouldn't it be you? What's so sacred about your life that it cannot be given in the cause of the gospel of Jesus? Oh, we Western Christians, how many times I know really, we have lost sight altogether of the idea of martyrdom. We've lost sight altogether of the idea that it would be right to die rather than to sin. Give me sin any day. But don't touch my body. It's holy to the cause of Philip Jensen. I hate pain, especially mine. And I don't want to glory in it. And I'm no masochist. And I'm not saying we should join a masochist society. But part of our world view must be the perception that this world is always going to be suffering and that Christians are going to be called upon to give account for the gospel of Jesus even to death. And part of the reason the world hasn't come to an end yet is because the number of Christian martyrs hasn't been filled up yet. And therefore there's no reason why it may not be me or you who are going to be that filling up. You ever heard Helen Rosevear speak? a shocking system she heard about some missionaries killed in Rhodesia and everyone was lamenting and wailing and saying what a dreadful thing those people killed she said it was marvellous they went straight to the Lord in glory <laughs> she recounts the fact that when our brothers and sisters from Cambridge and Oxford University in the last century 
saw the need for the evangelization of the world that Britain was tyrannizing, they went into places knowing that they would not come home for furlough. They would not come home. The average life expectancy of them for a period there was around about 18 months to three years. And yet they queued up to go. Hundreds of them went. Your age, people. Not the oldies. Not those who only had about three years to go, even on Western medicine, even with Medibank. No, not those kinds. Normal, healthy, youthful, intelligent, educated, wealthy people of the Lord Jesus Christ who saw their lives to be lived for the glory of God, for the worship of the Lamb, and knew his purposes were to gather in from every tribe, language and people, nation, those who would be his people singing his praises on that day and went to their deaths. And like the Macedonians of old, pleaded for the privilege. Here is the plan of God. Here are the purposes of God. But we're only up to number five. There are two more to go. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned red blood, blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth and the late figs dropped from the fig tree. It's kind of... Strange one, that was in the sun, the moon and the fig tree. You've got to go back into your Old Testament to pick up the imagery. As when shaken by a strong wind, and the sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, and now wait a minute, from 12 to 14, that really does sound like the end of the earth, doesn't it? I mean, the whole thing is collapsing now. Scroll, the sky's rolled up. I haven't seen that lately. I mean... And then the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty and the professors, they're all in there too. Every slave and every free man hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Isn't that puny? Isn't the mountains are being pulled apart and they're running to hide in the caves. I mean the sky is caving in but they're nicking under the stage. And they called to the mountains and the rocks and they said, fall on us and hide us. Hide us, because the, the wrath of God's breaking out of the whole universe. Hide us, protect me. Oh, my idolatry runs long, doesn't it? Even to the very place of the judgment of God, I'll still be trying to protect myself. Protect us, hide us. Who from? From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Oh, have you ever seen an angry lamb? <laughs> See the imagery? really a stark, it's just we're so used to it we gloss over. Right? From the angry lamb, well he's got the right to be angry because he has purchased this world. Now what have you done with it? Laid down his life, shed his blood, died, took upon himself the wrath of God, became sin. And you couldn't be bothered dropping out of law for the sake of preaching the gospel. You couldn't be bothered 
getting a second-rate car so as to give more money for others who could preach the gospel. Think he's got nothing to be angry about? To say nothing of those who wouldn't even acknowledge his name. The wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? We've still only done six seals. What on earth could be left? Well, nothing on earth is left, that's the point. What else could be left? After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been giving power to harm the land and the sea. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees. Don't harm it until we can put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number. Of those who were sealed, 144,000, and they're not Jehovah's Witnesses, they're Jews, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And you can read the rest of them there. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and languages standing before the throne. Where are they? They're the Gentiles. They're all in too. The Jews in their number and the Gentiles all gathered together in front of the Lamb and they are wearing the robes of victory. You see, the white robes. They're not the surplus in the Church of England, if you're that weird. They're the white robes of victory. That's what they're robed in now and they're holding the palm branches. branches. Do you remember what Jesus had to wave to you? Palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power to be our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? And I said, sir, you know. And that's a fairly good answer, I would think, at that stage of the game. <laughs> sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them and never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them any scorching heat for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb's now a shepherd. Dead lamb who was a lion who's an angry lamb turns out to be a shepherd. And incredible pictures that you've got here piled upon one upon another. The shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of the living water and blow me down if it's not Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd. Isn't that incredible? You've got to read it with the Old Testament. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and all those problems of this world are done away with. When? Then. On that great day, when the whole destruction of the world is taking place, just before it all goes down, we are sealed. We are spared. We are safeguarded. He rescues us from the wrath to come. That other king, not Caesar, that other king, Caesar's hiding down the caves, that other king rescues us from the wrath that is to come, sealing those who have been washed in his blood. And then he opened the seventh seal. You'll never guess what happens now. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Man, incredible. All the noise and kerfuffle you've had in the last three chapters. Here is, I think, one of the most incredible statements of the Bible. There was silence. Half an hour. You know, one minute silence on the 11th of November is enough to exhaust me. Half an hour right, is the picture you're given here. Great long silence. But a right thing now because when the seventh seal comes, it's all completed, isn't it? That's what number seven's about. And then I saw before the seven angels who were standing before God and they were given seven trumpets in the book of Revelation hives off onto the next cycle, which I won't give to you. We do need to stop. Here is a picture of reality. It's a Bible's picture of reality, but isn't it more engrossing? Isn't it more gripping? Isn't it more... It has a tremendous impact because it's not one of our logical, mathematical, precise ones. It's all full of images that pile upon each other that are almost mutually contradictory. But as they wash upon you, you start to perceive what really matters. What is it all about? The whole world has been created for a purpose of God. And therefore we owe God everything in our lives. Our very purpose of existence is God. But yet God's purposes have to do with a lamb. Because none of us are really worthy of God. Not one in all the universe except this one who dies, who is killed. But he is killed in order to purchase a whole people for God. Everywhere in the universe. That's what he was killed for. And so the world rolls on waiting the judgment in all its pain, in all its tribulation, in all its difficulty and famine and death, looking for that day when it comes. Yet there is a purpose of God and the purpose is all caught up with this lamb and his people. With the gathering together in of these people as they give testimony to the lamb and some die for that testimony. As they give testimony for the lamb, more and more people are washed in his blood. It's a lovely biblical image and tonight it's fair to use it. It's not jargon anymore, isn't it? Because it's those who have been accepting the sacrifice of this lamb who's who's died for them, those who are under his banner, when the great world falls apart and the wrath of God, they are spared. The Jews and the Gentiles from every nation, tribe and people, even strines. All there, you see, so that we can have a magnificent party singing the praises of God who sits on the throne and the Lamb who shares it with him. That is what reality is about. That's what you are about. That's what I'm about. And it's in the light of that that I must make my decisions. And you see, many of the decisions I thought were really important about marrying this one or that one suddenly kind of fade a little bit, don't they? Because maybe being married is not what's important anyway. Maybe being married is a hindrance to being one of those martyrs. Really, it's not. Maybe finishing my degree may not be that all important either. Indeed, getting, getting qualified and getting a job may not be really what's important. And owning one of those middle class ticky tacky houses may not be all that important either, may it? Indeed, what is important now? And what is unimportant? Well, I'll tell you something that's very important evangelism 
isn't it? Because in the great schema of what the whole universe is about, it's about people having their lives saved by the Lamb. Because he has been declared to the universe. See, missionary work is not an optional extra for the fanatical few. It's not that kind of course that Christians only want to take if they're doing an honours course in Christianity. You, know, you can get a past degree in Christianity without being a missionary or being that interested in it. That, that can't be what it's about, can it? The whole process of bringing the universe under the lordship of Jesus Christ is what life is about. And so what I must do in my course as a dentist, as a pharmacist, as a, as a, as a whatever it may be, street sweeper or minty whitewasher, whatever I am called, whatever I think I am doing in life, has got to do something somehow with the proclamation of the Lamb and his glorious victory and triumph so that somewhere someone else may be saved. Do you see why Paul in prison doesn't mind being locked up with the guards? Hey, up in heaven we'll have a few more guards to sing. A bit more of the old Latin coming in. Won't that be good? <laughs> you see, every race, every nation, every tribe, doesn't matter where I am, you see that the fundamental reason for going to tertiary education is to bring praise and glory and honour to the Lord and Jesus Christ who died for you that you may be saved. And one of the great ways of doing that is by declaring him to those around about you. Loving them, longing for them, praying for them that your stay with them will not be two years, three years in the course but be eternity around the throne. If you're not living for that, you're not waiting for the Jesus who comes. It's what we are and it's where we're going. Do you believe it? Oh yeah, I believe it. No, no. You test out believing by what you do, not by what you say. Do you believe it? Is that the vision or the kind of vision that actually has determined and affected the decisions you've made, the choices you've made, the actions you've done in the last year, in the last day, in the last week? Is that why you're doing what you're doing? Or is Christianity your hobby whereas other people have tiddlywinks? Because to reduce Christ down to less than the lamb who sits on the throne is to reduce him to tiddlywinks. But to elevate him to that position is to lead you into the Middle East to preach the gospel in places like Lebanon where you may not live to tell the story. Do you believe it? Let's pray for a moment and then we'll sing Worthy the Lamb Holy the Lamb, Jesus the Lamb. After we pray for a moment, the piano will start and we'll just join in singing that, shall we, quietly? <laughs>